Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. You're here today with Kara Williard, and of course, you can check out everything else we are doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. So I'm here today for our fourth and final installment of Blister's Mountain Towns and Local Food Systems series. And so if you haven't heard the previous three episodes, I highly recommend that you go back and do that now. Now, today for the fourth part, I not only had another interesting and really inspiring conversation, I also got to sit down with the one and only Jonathan Ellsworth, and we looked back at some of the major takeaways and broader themes and why we left feeling very inspired after this series over the last several weeks. So stick around for that. And for today's guest, I got to sit down with Rachel Landis, who is the executive director of the Good Food Collective. And you will soon find out why Rachel left a career of guiding and ski patrol to become the ultimate facilitator of local food. She talks a lot about food hubs, so you'll soon learn a whole lot more about what a food hub is and all the impressive work that her organization is doing in her community of Durango, Colorado. Not only that, but Rachel does an incredible job of contextualizing a lot of the work that she is doing into models that can be replicated in other communities that we care about. So thanks so much to Rachel for this excellent conversation. I know I learned a whole lot. And with that, let's get right into my conversation with Rachel Landis. And then, of course, stick around for my reflection with Jonathan Ellsworth as we look back at this entire series and why local food is important to the communities that we care about. All right. Well, I am here today with Rachel Landis of the Good Food Collective in Durango, Colorado, and I am so excited to welcome you to the show today. Thanks for being here, Rachel. Thanks so much for having me. This is awesome. (laughs) Yeah, we are super excited to have you. As many people know, we have been doing this multi-part series all about mountain towns and local food systems. And I am especially excited to talk to you today because I think some of the work you do with the Durango Good Food Collective is really interesting. It works within a lot of different facets of a local food system. And so I'm excited to dive a bit more into that and just kind of explore all the different ways that you help build a just and regional food system in your community. But before we get into that, I would just love to know a little bit more about you and your background. Yeah, awesome. Just kind of a cool pairing of the worlds here on the podcast. So my background, I actually um, kind of rambled the world in all of my 20s doing a lot of outdoor education and a little bit of guiding work, ski patrolling, avalanche education, you name it. And um, was ultimately trying to find ways to connect people to place and um, in doing so, hopefully steward our environment in a little bit more sustainable way. And ultimately, that brought me around the long, circuitous path to food systems. And so I've been in kind of established myself down here in Durango in southwestern Colorado um, 11 years ago today. It's my anniversary. Wow. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. And I've just... Um, I think worked at the college here for a while, running the equivalent of their sustainability department. And through that, he was working in energy and food systems and waste and all these different pieces. And just saw that food is this place where there's just wins. There's actionable things you can do that you can scale to make a difference, whether it's environmental or social or economic. Um, It doesn't matter where you're at on the political spectrum or what culture you're from. It's relevant and valuable to us. 
and it just tastes good. Absolutely. I love that. <laughs> I think, I mean, I, I resonate with a lot of what you just said. I think similar for my pathway as far as like loving the outdoors and then finding so much connection through farming and then being able to bring that to the community, I think is so important. Um, so I totally hear you on all of that. And that's really cool. So how's your summer in Durango been going? Oh man, she started out rough, both on an outdoor and an ag perspective. It was kind of apocalyptically dry and dusty and we were all holding our breath to see whether food would grow and or if the forest would light on fire and both did. So <laughs> fortunately the forest fires have been small and starting in late, I guess in July, our monsoons have come in and has been amazing. Um, so green and so lush and the trails are so tacky and yeah, the wild mushrooming this year is just off the hook. So it's, yeah, it's been a rad summer. That's incredible. <laughs> I know it's, I think we're in the same boat. Um, you know, we weren't maybe as dry, but we did have some er smoke roll in in early June and it was just like, uh Oh, what's to come. Some of that was probably from Durango. Um, but then yeah, the rains came forth and have just been incredible. It's been such a green and lush summer. So that's been Excellent. Yeah, yeah, very much concur with that. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So um, I think that's really cool to hear about your background in the outdoor industry and then how you brought that into farming. So now I'm just curious. I want to hear more about the Good Food Collective. Yeah, so um, I guess as I was mentioning, I was working up at Fort Lewis College, a little undergrad here. And um, at the time, we had a food systems program that was really focused more on institutional local food purchasing um, and how you could use that one contract with an anchor, quote unquote, anchor institution to really stimulate the entire ag economy and kind of develop out the wholesale markets down here. And um, through that project, I think I just got to see how many incredible community assets we have in place, like whether it's farmers who actually still grow food. I know that might sound silly, but it's real. <laughs> like they're growing food. And the fact that that food stays here as opposed to gets exported out. And the fact that I think our identity down here, even as a quote unquote mountain, quasi mountain, I think most of us would agree, is still very much linked to this um, sense of agriculture and ranching. Um, so, so much was in place. And yet, like a lot of rural places, a lot of mountain towns, right? Everyone's hustling. People are strapped and working three jobs. And so your head's down and you're moving forth. So if you're a farmer, you're farming. If you're a food assistance provider, you're working on getting people fed. If you're a restaurant, you're just hustling. Um, and so the Good Food Collective was really just this entity to say, hold on food systems, local food systems in particular, they can be this incredible force for good um, to really stimulate job opportunities, uh, economy, health and well-being, um, community building, power building, you name it. Um, but to get there, you've got to kind of build something, this phoenix rising from amidst the ashes of our current industrial food system. So we got started to say, all right, Y'all are busy. We're going to kind of take this backseat role and just operate, think like a food shed, think like a system, and just figure out how do we strategically work with all these amazing things that are in place to move forward to really realize all those benefits that a strong regional food system can bring to a region and a community. 
Mm, Yeah, I think that's excellent. And so I know in part one, I kind of defined um, how I see a local food system. So I'd be curious to hear kind of how you think about a local food system. I know you just mentioned the word food shed. And so for people who are really like mountain minded, um, I know like watershed and food shed kind of have like some overlap. And so if you could kind of dive a bit more into that. And then also, I know I talked about some of the different actors within that value chain within that localized food system. And so I'm curious to hear how Good Food Collective works to kind of bring these actors together so that everyone isn't heads down doing their thing, but there's starting to be some connectivity between these different people in the food system. Yeah. So tackling that first question, just how we see a local food system. uh, So we really do try to think on that geographic scale of food shed and Yeah, you named it. The best parallel in many ways is a watershed. So food shed, we think about it's it's kind of this geographic area loosely bound by the way people, goods and services flow, specifically as it pertains to locally produced and or curated foods. And so for us down here in the Southwest, just to give an example, like Durango doesn't grow food very much. Um, Silverton grows like four pieces of kale, right? It's way up at 10,000 feet, but the food shed expands all the way out into Cortez and New Mexico and Utah and Arizona a little bit. And so especially as mountain towns, right? Thinking like a food shed allows us to tap into a lot of the agricultural regions that surround us. Um, And so within that food shed, the food system is basically, it's like, it's everything from great, I planted the seed to where that food, that food's harvested, it's getting distributed, somebody's consuming it. And then we actually also think about the end cycle, the waste side of things as well. So it's that whole process, but overlaid on top of it, it's um, your economy, policies, governance, culture, social factors. Um, so there's this great diagram we have on our wall and it basically just looks like a bunch of ants running all around in chaos. And that's a food shed in our world. (laughs) They're all just connected and swirling. Yeah. And so I think your second question is really about, so if you have all these pieces, all these different players, um, yeah. How the heck do you get a politician to sit down with a farmer or a farmer to sit down with the CEO of the hospital to, to like see each other as interconnected enough to start working together. Um, and so for us, I think that is really the work. Um, and probably the, we're just four years old and we have spent our first three years. It's effectively the same thing as community organizing. So it's just identifying where are we all headed and who needs to be at the table to inform that. Um, One of our core principles we've like taken from the civil rights movement is like nothing about us without us, you know? And so um, we have worked poco a poco. And so, you know, we started by having a group of farmers sit down and then over here we had all of our food assistance providers sit down. And then over here we were having meetings with the politician type folks. 
And once you build that trust and rapport and you gain some little tiny wins with each of them, they start to have trust in you. And then you can start to convene them all on these bigger system projects and topics. And so, um, yeah, right now, you know, as an example, our Lopata Food Equity Coalition, it's healthcare, public health, farmers, ranchers, um, school system is there, suicide prevention, the immigrants' rights groups, you know, it's um, everyone coming together around this common and shared vision for we believe food can be a source of greater good. I think that's excellent. And I just love how you brought that all together. You can have people start thinking about all the way that these different actors do have connections to each other within a local food system. So that's awesome. Um, and I'd be curious just to hear you expand a bit more on how you define a just food system, because that might be kind of a newer concept for people who haven't thought as much in the local food arena. And so how do you at the Good Food Collective address um, building a just and regional food system? Yeah, so one of the probably more tragic things in our current globalized industrial food system is that um, food is not necessarily something believed to be a right. It's become something that's a privilege, um, especially healthy foods. Um, there's a great movie out there called A Place at the Table, if anyone is looking for a good <laughs> documentary to watch. And one of the charts that always sticks in my mind is just showing how the commodities coming from the U.S. government to support agriculture, how those that support for vegetables has tanked over the years at the same time that the support for grains and processed foods has skyrocketed. And that's pretty wonky, but kind of at the, the end of the day, what it means is that when you go to the grocery store, the processed foods cost almost nothing. We call them cheap calories, whereas those healthy foods cost more. And not only do they cost more when you get that healthy food, you have to have the time to be able to make it into something. And you also have to have the equipment, be it a knife or a microwave or a stovetop. Um, and I think, you know, we have these pretty, we all know this in mountain towns, we have these crazy spectrums of wealth or of disparity, right? And so I think if you are, um, on the lower socioeconomic scale of things, um, what your day could look like is uncertainty about whether or not you're going to have a meal. Um, it could look like, okay, I'll have a meal, but I went to the food bank and what I got was donuts. Um, and that's great because I don't actually have anything to cook with and I'm working three jobs, so I actually don't have time. I bet actually a lot of folks on this podcast can relate, right? Um, and so for us, like a just food system is one that is really kind of scrubbing away the sense that some of us get to eat well and some of us don't. And it's saying, no, this is a right. Like food is our health. It's our well-being. It's our culture. It's our identity. And so we are all going to be able to eat, have agency over the food we eat, um, to eat what nourishes our body and also, um, I guess, honors our sense of identity. So I think all that being said, um, kind of what that looks like on the ground for us right now is, you know, one strategy is we're working with existing market forces. So it, yes, healthy food costs more. So how can we bring in resources to supplement that cost of healthy food? Uh, so we do a bunch of collaborative grant writing and fundraising um, and other things to kind of help bring parity into the purchasing schema. And I think within that, it's like, cool, you get the prices at the same point, but 
do I really want to go to the farmer's market? And can I? Like, it's a pretty white space in Durango, and that might not be who I identify with. Oh, and it's on a Saturday morning. That's when I'm working, right? So in addition to that price piece, it's like, well, how do you create access um, to some of this food in the places where people already are? Um, and then beyond that, like, if you're from a culture that does not necessarily eat what do we eat a lot of down here? Peaches. <laughs> um, you know, how can we shift some of what's grown around here to reflect the various cultures and um, food preferences that exist? So that was all very heady. Um, and I guess just to ground again in reality, um, one of our big programs that I think a lot of places are adopting is, you know, work with your institutions. Um, so farm to school has all sorts of federal supports and other things, um, to help make, bring that cost factor down. Um, and I think if you have champions on the ground that know your food system, you really actually need the intermediaries like the Good Food Collective or like Mountain Roots over there in Gunnison, who can then hold the hand of the purchasing agent at the school to say, no, no, it's really worth the extra effort and we're going to help you and we're going to educate you on what's different from Cisco to what you can get here. And, and then all of a sudden you have, you know, every student in your region getting access to that healthy food, which might be their only meal of the day. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. And I know you just touched on a lot, but I think one piece I just want to dive into a little bit more before we talk about some of the other programs that the good food collective offers in your community would be trying to talk a little bit more about this, like, educational piece and trying to um, work with what can be grown in your region so that people, you know, know how to use it and just really trying to, you know, engage with that food literacy component. Um, so I'd be curious to hear a bit how you work as far as education of local food goes. Hmm. Yeah, it's uh, case by case and market by market, <laughs> if that makes sense. And I, I think, so when you're working with uh, those wholesale buyers, your hospital, your college, your schools, your senior centers. Um, you know, one of the things we are hypersensitive to at the Good Food Collective is, you know, everything we do needs to be in response to where people are coming from, where they're at, where they're starting from. Um, and so we make it a point just to build those one-on-one -on -one relationships with people and learn Again, this is all community organizing, <laughs> learn what their interests are and what motivates them and, you know, what's the system they're working with now. And I think in institutional accounts like that, we are creatures of convenience in this modern society. So whatever you can do to, to help mold your local food system to parallel that ease and convenience they're getting out of Cisco I mean, I, I know we all wish that wasn't the case, but it's it's just the reality. Super busy people. So we do a lot of, of systems development with folks in that regard. And on the education front there, it's also about literally the, the just banal thing of like combing through product lists and helping them identify, oh, well, broccoli costs this much here. Actually, here in your local, in our local market, it's pretty similar. So, you know, we'll literally help them pick out a series of crops that we know grow consistently here and that are kind of on price points. That's what we do over there in institution land. And then with consumers, holy gamole, gosh, it really does depend. We have a, a really awesome initiative um, 
working within our um, Latinx immigrant community. And there the value really isn't about um, that local, that sense of local, but that piece around health. Oof, that goes far. And so really there, because that's what we've heard people are interested in, it's educating about the nutritional content. And then also, again, a lot of what you get, especially in, let's say you're in a WIC program, which is a food assistance program, or take a cooking matters class, which are free cooking classes. They're giving you recipes I love it. They call them that Los Americanos love. Like I can't get full of salad. I can't even tell you how many times I've heard that. I'm like, there's so many ways to cook so many things. <laughs> so again, it's like meeting people where they're at. Great. You want recipes that reflect what you like to eat. Well, tell me what that is and let's work together to build some of those. Um, I don't know if that is helpful or not. No, totally. I think that really speaks to the question. And I like how you did it from both sides because it is, it's not just working on one side. It's kind of working with all within all the existing frameworks, you know, the institutions and the consumers and really trying to build the resources and the education on both ends. So and I guess one just thing I will add to that because it's it's a really important piece of it. Again, that information, education, and understanding on like we call them food behaviors is really important. But then you still have with like individuals that access side of things. And so helping people understand how to make local food more accessible. And so we do also pair a lot of our education with, you know, SNAP and Double Up Food Box outreach campaigns. Um, coupled with, once again, you've got to make a space seem like someone like I belong here. So coupled with farmer's market tours, or we'll all head down to the place that takes SNAP and double up food box, you know, with a trusted liaison from the community and go on a shopping tour, you know? <laughs> totally. And just in case anyone who's listening might not understand, um, can you just elaborate on what the SNAP and the double up food box program is? Because it is such an important resource in a lot of these communities. Yeah. Yeah. This is so SNAP um, goes by many names, but I think traditionally is thought of as like food stamps. Right. So it's food assistance that you get through through the federal government. Um, and then in some states, including here in Colorado, there are programs that um, have been put in place. Ours is called Double Up Food Bucks so that if you are using your SNAP um, benefits like right there, form of currency. If I'm paying with SNAP and I'm purchasing local produce, uh, it's actually doubling. It allows me to double that value. So it's this amazing program that allows folks to access incredible produce and product. So SNAP and Double Foodbucks, just look in your community to figure out who's who accepts SNAP, who's got Double Up Food Box, and they should help you with the rest. Perfect. Yeah, I think that's really helpful for people. And I'm sure something worth looking into for a lot of people. Um, hopefully they have access to it. So I know you just kind of talked in some of the ways you run your programs, but I know you have a whole lot of programs that the Good, Good Food Collective operates within Durango. And so I'm really curious to hear you dive more into those programs. I know you discussed the sort of grant seeking and fundraising and all that goes into kind of run running these really robust programs and how you operate within your community as a nonprofit. But I'm really curious to hear like you expand on all these other programs that are just really interesting and unique. Awesome. Sure. So 
Um, I think one of the programs we have that's everyone's like favorite go-to, especially right now, <laughs> is our gleaning program. And so, um, again, this is something you can do no matter where you are, as long as there's food grown. Uh, but about one third of the food that is produced ends up never making it into people's, well, to market. And then a third of that never makes it into people's mouths. And the end result of that is food waste is the eighth largest contributor to greenhouse gases in the world. Um, so gleaning is this, the art of just harvesting what is otherwise going to go to waste, um, but doing so usually when it's in really good form. Uh, and so uh, in our area, we happen to live in an abandoned fruit shed. Um, so when Washington State put in all of its apples and stone fruits, our um, industry over here died. And so now all these trees are in everyone's backyards and in their back fields, et cetera, et cetera. So we have a program where um, community members offer up their fruit for harvest. And we just have an online <laughs> easy access database and people just go out and pick fruit. Um, and again, that's a great way um, without needing the exchange of money to access healthy foods. It's family friendly activity. And we also do it as kind of an organized activity and each year are able to capture anywhere from 80 to 100,000 pounds of food, healthy produce, uh, that goes out through five counties worth of food assistance providers, banks, food pantries, et cetera. Um, so even if you don't have fruit trees, you could always talk to your neighbor's backyard, you know, if they have a backyard garden, I'm sure they have access. <laughs> That's such an awesome program and one that I was just captured by because it's always devastating when you see like a bunch of fruit just falling to the ground and not being utilized as a food resource in the community. Um, and I know we've talked a lot about kind of the seasonality and how it can be difficult in some of these mountain climates to really elongate the availability of food across like more months of the year. And so another um, program that you operate that I'm just really curious to hear you talk more about is your fruit for good program. Cause I think being able to take that food and turn it into a value add added product that is going to last a bit longer is such an important way to kind of extend food access deeper into the fall and even into the winter. So um, if you don't mind elaborating on that, I'm curious to hear a lot more. Yeah. So um, for all the reasons you just said a couple of years back, we, we launched this fruit for good initiative. So for us, it's a social enterprise, um, meaning that the proceeds from that actually fund some of our nonprofit endeavors. And basically once again, like our whole thing is what are the community assets in place and how do you take advantage of them? So we partnered with our local commissary kitchen. Most of y'all will have one of these and so they're commercial kitchens where you can produce food for resale, right? They have all the licenses, they know how to do it, et cetera, et cetera. And they have all the equipment. You just rent space from them. And so what we do is we take a bunch of these excess apples that we have here, B-grade fruit, we call it, that otherwise doesn't have a market. And we process it. And we have an, a massive industrial dehydrator. And we just throw these things in and we make apple chips. And it seems super simple and it is super simple. And the great thing about it is for us, you know, we sell these apple chips at farmer's markets and things like that that help fund us. But then on the flip side, we use all those proceeds. The funding us is actually funding us making apple chips to donate out to food banks and food pantries because, yeah, as soon as the harvest season stops, their produce quality goes 
down. Um, and again, one of the biggest barriers they experience is yes, availability, but also that their clients either don't have the equipment or the know-how often to use that product. So um, it's a great project. And then that industrial dehydrator has also helped to support three other local food dehydration businesses that are now, you know, off and running. So yeah, that's excellent. I think that really um, gets people thinking about some of the ways that we can extend the food that's available even into the winter sometimes. And so I know um, the original question that prompted this whole food series is like, what do we like? What about seasonal eating? It's really hard in these towns. And no doubt that is definitely true and a factor. Um, you know, I know Durango has a bit longer growing season than the Gunnison Valley, and it's kind of depends on which mountain town you're in as far as your availability to local food um, across how many months of the year. But I think getting people to think about ways of storing food and dehydrating food and all these other ways that you can um, extend that access is really cool. And then you're also like one thing that's happening down here that's been pretty exciting lately is, again, as we've built up these stable institutional accounts like schools, hospitals, et cetera, um, farmers are realizing they have a year round market. And so they're in turn incentivized and we're doing, you know, support um, resource wise to help folks develop season extension opportunities so the farmers can grow over longer periods of the year. And again, because we are kind of temperate down here year round. Um, and that gets to another question, which I think you and I, it was in some of your earlier communications where it's like, we live in these mountainous places and elevations create different microclimates, right? And so when we connect the cold Gunnison Valley to Durango, right? We can get you product a little bit earlier. And then if we go an hour south of us to Farmington, well, holy goodness gracious, they're growing year round. And so how can we tie all these things together to ensure that everyone's kind of getting that benefit as long as we can? <laughs> totally. I think that's a great segue because I would like to start having people think about what is a regional food system. So I think we kind of started it on a more micro scale, like what's a localized food system. Um, but I just want you to kind of dive deeper into what a regional food system looks like and what some of the logistics are and actually building this connectivity between different climates. Um, I know Good Food Collective definitely plays a hand in that in your region. And so like, what are some of the challenges, but also like, how are you operating in a way that can build this connectivity between different regions? Yeah, this has been, I think, an interesting, at least in Colorado, this is something that is a hot topic and people are really scratching their heads trying to figure out. And um, because we have all these different climates that either grow totally different crops and or are growing them at different times of year, how do you kind of coordinate amongst all of yourselves, um, again, to maximize local food movement across and within the state um, or within the regional food shed, which for us is, you know, less so Northwest Colorado, more so down here in Arizona, New Mexico, Utah. And um, so I think um, first off, there's that mental model shifting, right? Where it's to your point, let's think like a region. And then, I mean, these are, this is people's livelihoods and ways of doing things. And so once you've even made that mental model shift of let's start exploring this, how do you help facilitate some of this exchange of goods and services in a way that 
you know, ensures that people aren't going to lose their markets. One of the things we talk a lot about down here is we have less production than we have demand. So all of a sudden, if we start bringing in product from larger scale producers, like what's going on in San Luis Valley, their prices might look lower. And does that outcompete our local growers? You know, and so how do you coordinate? Yeah, how do we not replicate what's happened? How do we not like globalize our regional food system, if that makes sense? Um, so I think some of those conversations around how do you develop that market that's more values-based and driven? Um, and then a lot of it comes down to logistics. So even if you can get to that place, um, you know, farmers, especially smaller scale farmers, if you're harvesting twice a week and you've got your distribution routes running from Gunnison to Durango on Thursdays, how do you get everybody on that same page so that you can pick up from the one hub and bring it here? So I think there's quite a bit of logistics. And then there's also a lot of community infrastructure that needs to be in place. And so um, thinking about where our cold hubs are um, and how they can handle different product coming in at a different time. So uh, this is for a brain far bigger than mine, uh, <laughs> but I know those are some of the things we're starting to sniff around at region, like macro region, and we've been experimenting with micro region. So right now we have like arranged five counties worth of uh, folks to have these little like cold drops. And then we've partnered with existing distribution companies to manage the transport um, and are trying to develop systems that help automate some of it. So it's not just counting on, you know, people in the goodness of their heart and that one person that's really a good logistics thinker. Yeah, I think you just painted a really nice picture of how complex it can be and all the moving parts that have to be underway in order for this to really work. I think being able to sort of replicate it on this like five county model is a great way to kind of inch your way into it. And so I think giving people a way of thinking about it that maybe feels a little bit more attainable. But like you mentioned, there's, you know, so much infrastructure that goes into it. You're thinking about um, like just freezer and fridge space is such a big barrier sometimes. Like, can we actually take in as much food as is coming and things like that? Um, and then transportation and then just working within everyone's schedules. You know, I know as a farmer, it's really difficult sometimes to kind of like coordinate those harvests with all the different <laughs> moving parts as far as, you know, farmer's market, CSA, all these different days where things have to be ready. Um, and so this is just another element. But I think a lot of what you touched on is, you know, building the system and kind of really building the resources and the support to the people within this regional food system that makes it a little bit more attainable. Yeah. And I think one key piece to this that I've just kind of observed in my few years in this role here, but, you know, it's like the nonprofit sector thinks like it's in its little silo. And then you have the human services sector in its silo. And then you have the business sector in their silo. <laughs> and I think, you know, one thing, if you're not in this field it might not be clear is there's not that much money in local food. Like, um, even in any food, like grocery stores have some of the lowest margins of, of earnings you know, of any business out there. And so you're trying to make all of this happen in a pretty resource limited space. Um, and so I think being really, especially in these rural areas, right? And we're good at this. Like, how do we be really creative in using what's out there? And so rather than 
you know, okay, cool. We have our nonprofit food distribution taking place here. And that truck's going to X, Y, and Z on Tuesdays. And then over here's the for-profit folks and they're coming back with empty trucks. How do we really actually think about this again, thinking from a system as opposed to from a sector? Yes, I like that a lot from a system rather than a sector. So just trying to build all those connections. And I think, um, you know, Good Food Collective taking that holistic view on is really essential into like replicating this in other places. You know, that's kind of the, the framework that other organizations are going to have to work within. So it's really cool to start thinking about it and see how in some ways it's happening. It's really awesome. So I'd be curious, I know we kind of stepped away from it for a second, but I know you guys do a lot more than just the fruit programs. So yeah, let's dive back into those. I'm really curious to hear how you have worked with, I think, the hospital and doing some of the work to, you know, provide food as actual medicine. Um, So please break into that a bit more. Yeah, so this is, uh, it's a project we call Roots of Health, and it's very much a partnership between the Good Food Collective and our regional health care provider, which is Mercy uh, Regional Health. It's under the Centura Healthcare System. And uh, so again, this will be something that your communities will have. Um, I believe in the Obama era, hospitals in order to retain their tax benefits had to conduct um, a community needs assessment that in turn drives their community benefits programs, which are things they have to do for the betterment of the community. And a lot, so when we started looking at our community needs assessment for this region, what popped out, and this is everywhere I know of across Colorado, is that the biggest hindrance we had to community well-being are what we call social determinants of health. So these are things like that contribute to your state of health, and they include things like housing, um, stability of your work, uh, transportation, food security. And sure enough, down here, food security was one of the top things contributing to people's lack of health, Um, food security being consistent access to the types of food that allow you to support your health and well-being. And um, so we knew that that, that's what the flashing red light was down here. So um, we approached the hospital about whether or not they would want to work together on any projects. And lo and behold, they had come up with this whole schema of things they wanted to do. And lo and behold, it matched what our, some of our strategic work had identified as opportunities. Um, and so we just kind of got together and started looking at which of these opportunities is where we're best positioned um, to really make a difference. And what we came up with um, is a a few different initiatives, but I think the ones people are most excited about is the Produce Prescription Program. And this exists across the country, um, but I'm excited down here. This is, um, it's based in healthcare. So literally, if you come to the hospital or to the clinic, and when you sign in, you'll now meet with a nurse who'll ask you some questions. And if you say, yeah, you know, I haven't had consistent access to food, or there's been a few times in the last month where I, re- I had to skip meals because I, for whatever reason, um, and then you screen for diet-related diseases such as obesity or some cardio stuff, um, you actually get a prescription to fresh, healthy foods. And 
So then all of a sudden, literally food is medicine. Um, and you're, you're kind of, you continue to get prescriptions. Um, and on the community side of things, we're connecting that to local food markets and some of that bigger work around creating spaces that are accessible and create a sense of belonging, um, but also connecting it with some of what we call those wraparound services where you're helping teach people about cooking skills, helping them access things like slow cookers, that sort of thing. Uh, yeah. And that is, it's been a fascinating process. I will say it's really hard to work within the healthcare system. They have a lot of rules. Um, but the goal is that eventually we get this program to such a place that we, along with other folks in the country, are demonstrating how this really does impact health. Like, it's kind of funny when you go down the rabbit hole, because when you're saying out here, like, of course food impacts health. <laughs> anyways, we got sh to show it. We got to show the data. And then once we do, the end goal is to get this covered by programs like Medicaid. Um, so that once again, right, there's another source of static funding that can help people access food in the event that they don't have other means to do so. Yeah, that's phenomenal. And it's really cool to hear. I mean, I'm sure it's not the easiest process, but actually being able to work within the healthcare system when it comes to food access, you want those things to be more connected than they are, but it's not necessarily the easiest process in getting there. So it's really cool to see what you guys have done. Well, and that is one thing I would say is, is kind of one of the wilder pieces is just this disconnect <laughs> and how we got there, right? And how you watch people their the light bulb will turn on turn on excuse me and again it has nothing to do with like this there's no disbelief that food and medicine or food and health are disconnected it's just the way the system and the culture is where you just only think about it seems like the end the end treatment side of things like hospitals are for treatment they're not for prevention yeah, totally. It's definitely that preventative medicine that we need to focus a bit more on as a society. And I think this is a great way to do it. So it's cool to bridge that connection and to make it feel not so inaccessible. Yeah, so I think it's really cool to hear about all these different programs and how they operate within different facets of the community. And I just want to dive a bit more into this idea of food justice, because I know that you are an organization that's really rooted in that concept. And I think it'd be really interesting to hear a bit more about how you guys um, build justice into the work that you do. Yeah, this has been quite the journey for us um, here at the Good Food Collective and all of our partners. And so I think one of the uh, initiatives I'd highlight. Um, it's certainly been the most powerful teacher <laughs> and transformative in my eyes has, is our La Plata Food Equity Coalition. And so um, that is a group of folks spanning most sectors, like far beyond food system, <laughs> most sectors um, and impacted community members. And it's really taking, it's saying, what do we need to do to bring about food security to those folks most chronically impacted by um, that issue and in turn have like the worst health outcomes because of it. So in our region, that is our communities of color, our seniors and our rural populations. Um, and so what the way we have done this 
so that it is not a replication of what's been tried in the past, which hasn't worked. It is not me sitting here saying, I know what is best for these folks because I am in the food system world. Um, but instead, we've really um, taken the approach of saying, you know what, the people who are experiencing this, they have the answers. They know what they want. They know what they need. They know what's not working. And so um, our work has really been not only about centering people with, we call it in this world, centering people with lived experience in this work, but it's really actually been about changing the power dynamics. Um, so we use this um, model wherein, you know, it's like a, we call it the spectrum of engagement. And so are you just ignoring the people impacted by the problem? Are you saying, here's the solution, what do you think? Where you're just consulting? Or are you getting this place where you're saying, what's the solution? What resources do you need to make it happen? And so we're kind of always on this journey to try to get towards that end goal and um, have really just started this work by centering on one question. And it is, what would it take? What would it take for you to have access to the food that will support your health and well-being? Um, and I think that has been, that simple question has been the most powerful thing I've experienced in a while. Um, because the answers are not like more grocery stores or grow my own garden necessarily. It's, I need childcare available so I can go back to work. I need housing so that I you know, don't have to spend 87% of my income on housing or don't have to live two hours from where I'm working, um, which we can all relate to in mountain towns. Um, I need language access and language justice because yeah, there's all these great government programs, but if they're not in the language I speak. How the heck am I supposed to get to them? Um, and then I need power and a sense of belonging. Um, and that latter one is very real. Like we have communities within communities. We all know that. And um, just seeing, I think that word justice, you just brought up, like watching. So through this whole process, right, you ask these questions, you bring pe people are at the table. And then I think watching folks say, this is what I need. And then having this whole group of people working together with folks <laughs> to create the solution um, and watching this, it's almost like breaking the cycle. I'm going to get super wonky, breaking cycles of oppression <laughs> and watching people realize that they have power and voice and stepping into that. Holy cow. I have never, I mean, you want to talk about how we change a system. I think that's one really tangible and real way to do it. Yeah, that's incredible. And I don't think it's wonky at all. I just think it's a really great way of, you know, centering the people involved at the heart of the solutions and listening and not, you know, yeah, like you said, not consulting or doing like a top down approach to try and address some of these really complex issues within our society, but actually trying to rebuild the system by, like you said, centering people with lived experience. I think that's really the, the best way um, to have the most impact within some of these complex issues. So yeah. that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty funny. Like we are a food system organization who started a child care cooperative coalition who is currently training the next round of interpreters in our community because we don't have any. You know, we are working on launching food business enterprises um, for our immigrant communities. So it's, it's definitely, I think it's a very different model and a way to address community 
challenges, the wicked problems. Um, but so far, it seems to be really working well. And um, yeah, we're learning a lot. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, it's great to, you know, stay humble in that process. I'm sure it's just like a constant learning from so many different directions. And so that's really awesome. Um, and I think, you know, what I've learned through my years in working within food systems is like food is the great connecting point to so many other things. And so you start kind of addressing like how to build a local food system. And all of a sudden, you're untangling all these other interrelated pieces that you you didn't even necessarily think about when you started. So it's really cool that the Good Food Collective has taken that approach to build these kind of systems change um, solutions that hopefully, you know, have really lasting impacts within your community. Inshallah. That's awesome. So um, I guess I just want to hear a little bit more. I know we've kind of talked more widely about these programs and I think it's really been helpful to people to think about like, well, geez, these are some of the things that I can do in my community. And these are some of the issues that we've seen. And um, even as simple as like trying to salvage or not salvage, but save some of the food from going to waste. You know, when you see that fruit tree, like how can we create these systems so that there's a lot less waste within the system and building the connectivity between all these different stakeholders. Um, but I am just curious now to zoom in a little bit more to the Good Food Collective and to hear just kind of how you guys operate. Um, like what is the hands-on, the ground work look like as far as, you know, your team and how are you operating within your community to kind of paint that picture for all the work that you are doing? Yeah, so I think our name is very apt. <laughs> um, we are, I think we really do operate as a collective. Um, so we are tiny. We have two full-time staff, one AmeriCorps, um, like 10 seasonal staff and 10 contractors, really part-time contractors or project-based contractors. And our, we are committed to, I, I think our role is really to weave things together. So we're just in the background mapping everything out figuring out who's who and where they are, and then we convene people. And I think, you know, um, our team, we are all people that really have that inherent, what do they call it, like nature brain? Like you see the linkages of all the things. <laughs> um, and uh, we all, yeah, we just are conveners who also have really strong facilitation skills. That's about it. And so we bring people together and then we ask the right questions like you're doing in this interview and then listen to what comes out of it. And then you step back and you pull out the themes. You bring it back to the folks you connected with, make sure it resonates. Um, and then either ideally we try to figure out, well, um, I'm trying to use a real time example. Yeah. So right now we're working on how do we make our county more food business friendly um, and so some of the, we did this huge community stakeholder session or series of, of surveys, sessions, et cetera, and all these things emerge. And one piece of it is great. We need like an incubator program. And one piece is we need to do some policy work. And one piece that came out of it was we need some resource guides. Well, the people that are helping us gather all this information are the exact entities that have it in their scope of work. Um, and within their standing staffing patterns to be able to take those things on. 
So then our job becomes all about the fine art of delegating and convincing. We're like, you know what, City of Durango? Wow, that business, like economic opportunity coordinator y'all just hired. Do you think that this like food entrepreneur, like incubator project, do you think that fits under their scope of work if we could help with some grant writing and support them? Oh, it would. Oh, awesome. Cool. And then you're like, oh, small business development center. So we heard this need for like finance classes. Do y'all do finance classes? Oh, you don't. Well, hmm, you know, <laughs> so anyways, we just do a lot of busybodying. Um, so you, you convene, you facilitate, you reflect back, you come up with a strategy, you delegate, and then you hurt the cats. That's it. That's our whole, <laughs> whole schema. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, it's impressive, actually, to hear how you're operating with a smaller team like that, but still just you know, networking and finding the ways to work within the community and actually like build again, these connections where other people might not have seen them. So that does just come down to a lot of like data collecting and listening and then trying to find the strategies that are feasible within that given community. So I think that gives people a lot to think about as far as like how this can be replicated in different areas, because it is very place-based and specific to the region that someone might be living in. But I'm curious to hear you just talk a bit more about like how you think people should get involved in their local food system. Like I know in uh, part one, I outlined a lot of different ways, like based on the amount of time you have in your day or like the amount of space or um, just all these different factors. But like when it comes down to the work that you're doing, how do you see just people interacting with organizations like the Good Food Collective? And what are some of those action items that you really just want people to maybe think about after we close out today? Hmm. So I guess this is always my little stump speech or what have you, but um, I'll go back to think like a system. And so figure out where your interests align with your competencies and then find a place to plug in that puts all those to work. And so when we talk about systems change, we use something called the FSG waterline model. So you can Google that one. Um, but it basically, it's this little triangle. And at the bottom point, you have, great, you're working to change mental models, how people think, you know, like not, you're not trying to manipulate how people think, but just, you know, introduce questions about like, huh, why do we always shop for groceries at Walmart? And is that okay? And you know, just really giving some thought to it. Um, and then once you've got that, you know, whether you're doing that individually or within your family or within the organization you work for or the community you represent, then you can kind of go up and look at what are the different um, kind of relationships and ways we interact with things. Is there a place there that I can fit into? So yeah, maybe you are the party planner for your community. Well, you are relating with all kinds of people. So maybe, you know, you're going to introduce the farmer into this whole party planning scene. I don't know. That's a terrible example. Uh, so how are your relationships working? Over here is also power dynamics. What is that looking like within the system that you're operating this food system? Um, and is that a place you like to noodle on and push on? So maybe you're the enabler and you sit on a board somewhere and you're like, cool, I really want to bring this voice to the table that's never heard. And then kind of up at the top of our little triangle, we always talk about practices, policies, and resource flows. So is there anything you can do that plugs in there? So again, we're systems people. So always encouraging people to think 
like a system and think in connectivity rather than think like a line, which is how I think a lot of us are trained in this country. Um, and then this just comes from being a long time um, activist who's <laughs> burned out enough times to just find where your heart feels good in this food system. Be clear on the vision that you, what you're promoting, push on it, um, but be okay with just giving, giving what you can and then restoring yourself elsewhere. So it's very vague things, but uh, they, they apply regardless of whether it's food systems, the environment, social justice, I guess just go out and do good in this world. <laughs> Yeah, I love that. And I think, uh, yeah, it gives people a lot to think about as far as where they can take this and, you know, where their passions lie and where their purpose lies and kind of finding that intersection too. And how there is a lot of really diverse ways to get involved with local food. And sometimes it's actually working in a completely different sector, you know, entirely, like you mentioned, housing and all these other issues that all contribute um, to a just and resilient food system. So I think you've really painted a beautiful picture of what that can look like. And I think it gives folks a lot to think about. Um, So I just want them to be left with maybe how else uh, they can find out more about the Good Food Collective and um, any other resources you kind of want to point out as far as getting involved. Yeah, awesome. Um, Well, we welcome everyone to come on down southwestern Colorado at any point in time, especially during the fall time. It's our harvest season. (laughs) Come glean fruit with us. (laughs) No, but uh, to learn more about our work, uh, we've got a website, um, goodfoodcollective.org. We also have a rocking Instagram presence, thanks to our amazing AmeriCorps, um, that I think, you know, through stories and through pictures really tries to tell capture what is a regional food system and how do you shift it as people, not as like crazy institutions or organizations out there floating in the ether. Um, And feel free to holler me. Mostly I don't know anything, but I'm really good at knowing people who know lots of things and I'll direct you to them. Uh, (laughs) And yeah, I think on that, if you're in Colorado, there's just some great resources you can check out. Um, the uh, CSU has a pretty cool food systems um, program and they have an amazing website that has all kinds of data um, you can access as well as resources. So it's kind of like a a pretty cool localized area to go. If you're, like I said, you were like the person that really want to get in policy or you're the person that was really excited, honestly, just to know who your farmers are. Um, That is a pretty good starting place. I would say. Yeah. That's awesome. Thanks so much, Rachel. And I think it's really cool. Um, you know, you share that same passion for connecting to place via food. And I think it's the same passion that many of us share in the outdoor community as far as why we like to go outside and be in the mountains and connect to these places. And as I've mentioned in the previous couple episodes that doing so through food is just another way to connect to the places we love. And I think you've really brought some fire behind that. And it's really cool to see the work that you're doing. So thank you so much for coming on today. And we really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, thank you so much. I love I love these lines and these connections you're drawing because I always think about I ski patrol with Telluride, right? And so I always think about how like, when that snow melts, it's just gonna water my fields. Love it. <laughs> totally. That snow melt is what grows our food. So that's, that we, we do not want to forget that. So um, yeah, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, everyone, please reach out to Rachel with any additional questions, but thanks for taking the time today. Thank you. 
All right. Well, now I am here with Jonathan Ellsworth, and we are going to sit down and talk through some of the key takeaways and some of the broader themes that we kind of took from this four-part series that we did all about mountain towns and local food systems. So, hey, Jonathan, how's it going today? It's going well, Kara. Beautiful day in Colorado. Oh, it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. So, I'm looking forward to talking to you about some of our takeaways. And then I think you and I both are about to like sprint outside and uh, just enjoy enjoy the rest of the day, not indoors. Absolutely. Definitely going to maximize some time outside today. The leaves are changing. It's warm. It's a beautiful day. Here, here. All right, Kara, let's talk about some of the key takeaways. What do you want to start with? Yeah, I mean, I think... As people listen to this series, the thing that's most obvious is how passionate everyone that we spoke to was. And I think that was really inspiring. So even as someone who's kind of operated in this space for a while, it was really inspiring to me to be able to talk to people from other communities and see what they're doing to kind of help bring local food to their community. And so I think that is just one key takeaway is like, there's a lot of people working within this space and all of them are really passionate. And I think hopefully some of that in trigger some inspiration from others listening to this series. Yeah. And I confess that I think for me personally, one of the most striking things from this whole series was hearing Chris Rubens say that his work farming is the most meaningful thing he's ever done in his life. Chris is a very thoughtful person We've had him on the podcast talking about electric vehicles and reducing carbon footprints and all the rest. So I think to hear him so unequivocally, unambiguously state that, I just wasn't actually expecting that. Yeah, that was powerful. And I think that uh, episode with Chris really did bring it back to me as to why I got involved with farming in the first place. And so it's just really good to come back to those conversations and kind of remember why you're doing the hard work um, and to see all the hard work that everyone else we spoke to is doing for their community. I thought it was really interesting how Lindsay from Gracie's Farm was really interested in not only getting the community involved, but also trying to educate people visiting Park City and trying to kind of bring tourists into that fold, into that conversation as well. And then as you just heard with the conversation with Rachel, she's doing a lot of work just to kind of facilitate as many relationships as possible so that there is a lot more efficiencies to like the way a local food system can operate. Yeah. What else? Yeah, so I think... What was also really cool throughout all the episodes is just to hear how a lot of the people we spoke to were really contextualizing the work they were doing into some of the broader issues that we're facing as society. So I know like climate change got brought up quite a bit. And of course, I think sometimes it's hard to make that connection between why the food you're eating is affecting climate change or how the food you're eating can actually be a method of climate mitigation. But I think through the conversations we had, whether it's talking about the health of the soil or being able to kind of lessen our carbon footprint through the food that we're eating, or just kind of having that more localized regional um, scale in which we're operating, it was really cool to hear how a lot of the work that people are doing is really, you know, centered on a small scale community, but that it's also really working to like address some of these really complex problems that we're facing in society right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, honestly, when we started talking about this series quite a while ago, 
it really struck me as very fringe and very niche and kind of like, are, does this really warrant a deeper exploration and four episodes here? And I think that has really been driven home to me. This is one of the great examples where steps that we can be taking as individuals collectively can really start to change the system, right? And that's really exciting. Yeah, I've just learned a ton along the way. Yeah, absolutely. I learned a lot as well. And I think hopefully that is the common thread for all of us through listening to this series is that there was a lot here for as far as just consumer education and starting to think about that choice that you're making when at the grocery store or whether you're going to the grocery store versus the farmer's market on Saturday. And so just getting that education piece as kind of the first foundation to how we start to approach this localization of food systems. But then, of course, as we've heard throughout the series, there's so many ways to get involved. And I think a lot of those ways to get involved can really be adapted to your lifestyle. So we're not asking everyone to go be a farmer. That's obviously not feasible, but it was really cool to hear a lot of the different ways that people can get involved. And I think that's something that we should all kind of take with us moving forward is how we can participate in our local food system in ways that make sense to our lifestyle. Yep. All right. Well, before we sign off here, then, do you mind just kind of articulating a few of the key principles, things that we should be keeping in mind or doing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we heard a lot and we addressed a lot throughout this series, the idea of seasonality and why that doesn't mean we're going to be adopting a fully seasonal diet. I think it gives us a lot to think about as far as sometimes we can make the seasonal choice and also being able to make the local choice when it just comes to what food you're purchasing and maybe supporting the restaurants that also purchase locally and kind of being able to find those threads of local food where you live. But of course, you know, we mentioned the CSA, we mentioned farmers markets, we mentioned finding ways to help your farmers and support the local food economy by supporting the producers. And so of course, farmers, like I mentioned way back when need help, but there's also really cool organizations such as the Good Food Collective. And that's a great way to get involved. I mean, These organizations are definitely looking for volunteers at all times. And so whether it's the food that you're purchasing or consuming or just finding a way to kind of get close to that food via volunteering or working or whatever it may be, I think there's a lot there that you can do to get involved with your local food system. Well, Kara, thank you. This has been really fun to think through this with you and to be on some of these conversations with you. And uh, so, yeah, thank you for all of it. And for introducing us to therapy chickens, for delivering me on special occasions, those purple carrots that you know I'm now such a huge fan of uh, from your own farm. It's all been really great. And so thank you very much for all of this. Yeah, thank you, Jonathan. And I just want to say it's been an ultimate convergence of dreams for me to be able to talk about local food on the Blister podcast. I think that's really cool because it's bringing two things I'm super passionate about together. So great opportunity and thanks so much for doing it with me. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks, Kara. All right. Well, there you have it. Our fourth and final installment of Mountain Towns and Local Food Systems. And of course, this week's episode of the Blister Podcast. Thank you so much to Rachel for this excellent conversation. Thanks to Jonathan for sitting down and reflecting with me. And of course, thanks to Jonathan also for letting me dive into this series, which 
like I just mentioned, really brings a couple of my major passions together. One being the great mountain town that I live in and my community here, in addition to my excellent job at Blister and my passion for skiing. And the other being my obsession of local food and farming. So like I mentioned, this has been the ultimate convergence and dream come true for me. Thanks so much to previous guests we had on from the series. I am left feeling super inspired. And thanks so much to all the people who are doing really incredible work in this space. It's hard work and it is so worth it. Thanks to all of our listeners who stuck with us through this journey and hopefully learned a whole lot about local food and can think about how some of these ideas apply to the community that you live in. And of course, thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And with that, we'll talk to you all again real soon. Please take great care out there. And I hope you all are enjoying some beautiful fall weather as well.